Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's always a privilege to, to be here and to open the Word of God with you. Uh, and in particular, it feels like a, a special privilege around Christmas time. We get to talk about the coming of Jesus Christ, and it's, it's always exciting to read and, and preach from the Bible, whether it's, it's later in the New Testament where we hear, you know, who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do, or whether it's out of the Old Testament and seeing the work of the Lord in, in history and in time and pointing it to Christ. But there's something special about preaching about the, the high points of the biblical narrative, the coming of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the return of Christ. So this is a special moment. This is a special uh, season and month where we get to study these things together. Uh, it's also particularly special to uh, be able to preach about the, the coming of Christ and the birth of Christ. Uh, Grace and I are expecting baby, uh, a baby number one in June, so that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. Good, good timing to preach about the birth of Jesus. Uh, so I tell you that for, for three reasons. First one uh, is that Grace hates telling people, so now she doesn't have to. Second reason is that uh, church family is, is important. So we're, we're telling you, and that because that's an important thing to us, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a Facebook announcement, it's not a social media announcement, it's a, to our, our church, our family. So that's an important thing uh, to us. We wanted to share it with you first. Uh, feel free to tell others, of course, at this point. Uh, and the last reason I tell you is because it's terribly awkward to give an illustration that involves your pregnant wife when you haven't told everybody that she is. So now I can say it later in the sermon, and it's not so weird. Um, so before we get started, let's just think for a moment about what Jody preached uh, last week out of the Gospel of Luke. So his message was, uh, do not fear because the King is coming. And he said, Jesus came to the earth, and he came to the womb of a virgin, and he came to rescue us and to reveal God's power, and he came to reign forever. And the question he left us with was, how do you respond to this King Jesus? Do you respond in faith? Do you respond in submission as humble servants or not? So this morning we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke, and what we're going to see is that we do not need to fear because God is sovereign. Before we do that, I want to spend uh, just a minute looking at Luke's overarching purpose in writing his gospel account, because it really helps to fill in what he's doing here. If you go back to Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 4, Luke says he's writing these things so that us, the readers, may have certainty regarding the things that you have been taught. So think briefly about the things that we have been taught, even in just the last week from the gospel of Luke and ponder with me if you have certainty in these things. First, are you certain in the real, historical, actual, physical virgin birth of Jesus Christ, that Mary conceived miraculously through the work of the Holy Spirit and no human father, that Jesus was born into this world from a virgin, Mary? Do you believe and affirm with certainty that the union of God and man took place fully and perfectly in Jesus Christ. He was fully God and fully man on this earth. Are you certain of the sinlessness of Christ, that he was born sinless, that he lived sinlessly, though tempted as we are? Are you certain that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to us, and that he lived and that he died? And that he was resurrected from that death, conquering death and sin, and ascended into heaven. That that really happened. And do you believe, are you confident, are you certain 
that our King Jesus is coming back and he will reign eternally over all things. What we're going to add to this list this morning is that God is sovereign, and we ought to be certain in that as well. Our king came not only in a miraculous way with a glorious purpose, but he rules unlike any other. Our king is ultimately sovereign. We're going to say that word a lot in the next uh, few minutes, so let's spend a moment just on that word before we get too far. It's, It's important that we know what it is that we're affirming about God before we we talk about it for a little while. We most commonly express the sovereignty of God through his names and his titles. Even in some of the songs this morning, they they use titles of God that affirm his sovereignty. For instance, we would say that uh, God is God most high. There is no one higher than him. We would say that God is the sovereign Lord, the only sovereign Lord. We would say that he is the Lord God Almighty. He is all mighty. We would say that he is the king of kings, of all other kings. He is the Lord of lords, the Lord of all other lords. The Bible, of course, has lots of things to say about this, too. If you go to Psalm 103, the psalmist writes, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Daniel chapter 4 says, The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. First Chronicles says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in, in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and Lord of Lords. There's a a theological dictionary I I was reading this week that defines it this way. It says, sovereignty expresses God's very nature as all-powerful, as able to accomplish his good pleasure, able to carry out his decreed will, and able to keep his promises. God is completely and totally sovereign over all things in every time and place. If you want to put it simply, God is in control. This morning we're going to see that sovereignty of God specifically in the coming of his son in, uh, in Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. So if you would turn there with me if you haven't already uh, and stand with me, I'll, uh, I'll read from Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That is indeed the word of the Lord. You can grab a seat. Well, 
when I read through this text the first time in, in preparation to, to preach it this morning, it, I couldn't get past how the text just struck me as, as almost plain or, or uneventful. You read through the rest of the narrative, and all you can see is the clear and evident work of the Lord. All you see are appearances of angels and prophecy and the Holy Spirit. Let me just go through Luke chapters 1 and 2 quickly with you. You start at Luke chapter 1, and you see in in the early verses, in verse 11, uh, an angel appeared to Zechariah and told him that his barren wife of incredible age would uh, be pregnant with a son, and that son, in verse 15, would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then the angel Gabriel, in chapter 1, verse 26, goes to Mary, and he says, Mary, the Lord is with you, and he promises Mary, your son will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And the angel promises that the, the boy will be conceived miraculously through the power of the Most High and the Holy Spirit. Mary then goes to visit a relative Elizabeth, and you get in verse 40 that Elizabeth, when he, she sees Mary, is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies. And then Mary sings this song of incredible worship to the Lord. And then later in chapter 1, John the Baptist is born, and when he is, they go to name him, and they call him John. And Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies about Jesus. He says, our King is coming. And then we get our narrative, chapter 2, 1 to 7. And after that, a group of angels show up to a bunch of shepherds in the wilderness, and it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the angels say, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And they sing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then a few days later they go to the temple to uh, purify Jesus and Mary. And they run into two prophets there. One who is promised to see the Savior and he sees Jesus and he prophesies because he knows he's the one. And then you get another prophetess, Anna, and she sees Jesus, and she begins to glorify God because she knows he's the one. Our text is surrounded by the work of the Lord, and that when you, when you read it, there's not, that's not there. It's not present. Chapter 2, 1 to 7 seems almost plain. And I've become convinced that Luke is doing this on purpose. It's, it's a narrative tool to point us to this text. Luke 2, 1 to 7 has to be the climax of the passage. It's the birth of Christ. It's one of the high points of the Bible, right? We look forward to it for so long, and all of the sections in Luke 1 and 2 point to it. It's got to be the climax. It has to be the peak. It has to be the most important thing. But Luke gives it to us in a moment of almost calm. It's, it's a moment of almost contemplation in the middle of this action-packed story. We're not very familiar with what I think Luke is doing here as a narrative tool, but we are familiar with it more in the world of music and movies. He's given us this moment of pause in the midst of all these exciting things. Think about uh, music. In that world, it's called a cesura. It's a real word. I talked to my brother who has a bachelor's in music or something, and he knew what it was, so we're rolling with that. Uh, I had to look it up. And what that is, it's a moment in a musical piece, typically in the middle, somewhere near the climactic musical moment where everything stops and you get silence and you revel in that climax 
The best and most well-known example I could, I could find uh, is from Handel's Messiah in the Hallelujah Chorus. You get towards the end of that chorus and you hear this resounding qu uh, choir singing hallelujah, 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 and the music stops and you sit and you wait and you just enjoy that moment of climactic triumph and then they resume and sing again hallelujah to conclude the song. We see it in movies as well, often in, in movie scores, right? You get the, the climactic moment of the movie where they get to where they're trying to go or they find the person they're trying to find or the, the battle begins or something. And whenever that happens, often the, the, the camera will even go to, the, to slow motion and they make you sit in it and the, the, music, the movie score, the music will stop or become quiet and you sit in that climactic moment and just wait and enjoy because you've been anticipating it for so long. That is, I'm convinced, what Luke is doing here. He's laid out this passage, and he fills it with anticipation and waiting and expectation and prophecy and angels and the Holy Spirit, and you get to the moment he's talking about, and he doesn't need to say, this happened in fulfillment of the prophecy, or this happened because the angel said it would, because we know that. We've read the text. We're expecting these things, and so he just lets us enjoy the moment. So with that, I'm going to read it again, because I'm, it changed for me this text, and I hope it will change it for you. So just listen as I read, with all of those things in mind. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Can you hear the angels in that moment? Can you feel the real, present, present glory of God happening in our text. We're going to spend the rest of our time together seeing how the sovereignty of God works out clearly uh, in our text, and we see it through all of those prophecies, through all of those moments, through all the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see four ways that God is clearly showing and demonstrating His sovereignty in this text. First, God demonstrates his sovereignty over rulers and governing authorities, even the emperor of the largest empire in the known world. 2 chapter 1, Luke 2 chapter 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was not a, a random act by a random ruler at a random time. God is doing something specific in this moment through this specific act, specific ruler, and specific time. It wasn't left up to chance. It's not like God was playing cosmic bingo. He's specifically ordaining the ways of man and carrying out his decreed will. The reason we know that is because this census led Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem. And in doing so, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which fulfills a prophecy uh, that we will go to in a few minutes. But this is a moment of prophetic fulfillment. They are sent there for a purpose, by decree, 
from Caesar himself. The incredible part about this to me is that we expect that God works and does things. We expect him to be involved in his world to some degree, but very seldom do we imagine that God is sovereign and involved to this level, to the, the, the calling of a census of 50 million people in Rome. That's incredible. Think about what God was accomplishing. He was getting Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Surely there was a simpler way to get two people to travel 70 miles. Surely. Right? Joseph's family's in Bethlehem. How about a funeral? Or a, a reunion? Or a, like a birthday or something? Right? Like there's lots of ways it could have got there. A business deal. Who knows? But rather than act in, in a small sovereign way, God acts in a big sovereign way. And he chooses to demonstrate his sovereignty over the whole of Rome. What I want us to see is that this is not an isolated act of God. It's not as though he acts sovereignly over rulers sometimes in some places once in a while as recorded in the Bible. He is sovereign over all rulers in all places at all times and all things. And we can see that all through scripture. Start with Pharaoh. The Lord says to Moses, he says, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do in it, and after that, he will let you go. You go forward in time to the, the nations of Assyria and Babylon who conquered the kingdom of Israel, who conquered Judah, and through the prophets uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel, the Lord says, I used those nations as a tool, as a means of my judgment on the people of Israel and Judah. They were not acting of their own behest. I sent them. I used them. You can go even further and talk about Cyrus, the king of Persia. He allowed the people of Israel to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city walls. You get this all through Ezra and Nehemiah. Second Chronicles says, In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. The kings are in the hand of the Lord. In the book of Daniel, you get incredible examples of this through the, the king Nebuchadnezzar. You should honestly just read the narrative, chapters 1 through 4. It's incredible how the Lord demonstrates his sovereignty over and over. And there's a moment in time where Daniel is praying to preserve his very life. And he prays in, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20. He says this of the Lord. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons he removes kings and sets up kings. He gives knowledge to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God is sovereign over rulers and authorities who he institutes over us according to his will. And not as authorities in biblical times, not as authorities in the time of Christ. He removes kings and sets up kings, as Daniel says. God is sovereign over our rulers and authorities whom he has instituted over us according to his will. The governments of Canada, the government of Ontario, the government of Barrie, the Lord is sovereign over all of them. The second thing I want us to see is that God is sovereign over his promises. We get in, in our, our section, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, starting there, you can see that Joseph and Mary travel uh, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, 
because he was of the house and lineage of David. And then our section concludes in verse 7, where Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. Those two things are moments of incredible prophetic fulfillment. Start with the big one, the moment of Jesus' birth is huge fulfillment of so many promises and prophecies all through the Bible. You can walk right from Genesis to this moment and see God promising this over and over again. You start in Genesis 3, and after they've sinned, the Lord promises Adam and Eve. He says, I will send you a seed, a promised son, who will crush the head of the serpent who tempted you. He promises Abraham. uh, He makes a covenant with him. He says, kings will come from you. All the world will be blessed through your line and we will have an everlasting covenant fulfilled in Christ. Uh, Jacob promises to his son Judah in, in the book of Exodus. He says, Judah, you, my son, the scepter and the ruler's staff will never depart from you. It's fulfilled in Christ of the line from Judah. Uh, the people of Israel promise in Deuteronomy, a new prophet like Moses will speak the word of the Lord. That's Jesus. And David the king is promised that his throne will endure forever in 2 Samuel. And again, that is... Jesus. Jesus fulfills all kinds of promises just in his birth. Not only in the fact of his birth, but the location of his birth is also subject of prophecy. If we go back to the book of Micah, chapter 5. Micah prophesies this in chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The coming of Christ in the town of Bethlehem is massive fulfillment of the promises of God. God is sovereign over the fulfillment of his promises. And that's what our narrative is showing. I also want us to see that God is not only faithful in the fulfillment of these promises at this time about Jesus, God is faithful in fulfilling all of his promises. He says this of himself in Jeremiah. He says, I am watching over my word to perform it. The Lord knows his promises. He will bring them to fulfillment. Think on the things that are promised to us as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ. First, we have surety in our salvation. If you are saved, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that is something that cannot, will not change. Philippians tells us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, what shall separate us from the love of God? The answer is nothing. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are sure in your salvation. We can also be sure that God will fulfill his promise of a resurrection from the dead. As Jesus was raised from the dead and conquered death and conquered sin, so shall we be raised with him to new life. And third, we can believe with confidence that Christ will return and he will establish his kingdom forever as King Jesus. 
We can have confidence in all of these things because God is sovereign over all of his promises. Third, God is not only sovereign over his promises and their fulfillment, but the moment of their fulfillment. God is sovereign over the timing. He ordains not only the who and the what and the where, but the when. God is sovereign over timing. Galatians 4 tells us about this prophetic fulfillment. He said, Galatians says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ came in the fullness of time. Many Christian scholars have demonstrated to us, after the fact, why the timing of Christ's birth made so much sense from a historical perspective, not just for his coming, but even the spread of the gospel. You've probably heard some of these before, but I'll give you a list. Uh, the coming of Christ and the spread of the gospel were, were situated so well at this time because, first, the Roman Empire was at peace, which is a historical oddity if you track the Roman Empire. There was a, almost a 200-year period of peace. They were not at war, but an opportune time for the gospel to move in Rome. Second, because Rome had such a significant military and, and moving of commerce, they built roads everywhere. You could travel so easily within the Roman Empire compared to any time before this. Third, because there was so much trade and commerce and things, there were commerce routes everywhere, over land, over sea. So as a missionary, Paul was able to book passage on ships of trade. It's not like there were passenger liners. You couldn't book like a plane ticket, right? You, you had to go if somebody was going. You couldn't just decide you were going to take a boat to Rome. You had to find one. Uh, and also in the Roman Empire, they had a common language. They spoke Greek. So if you knew the gospel and you could speak Greek, you could preach the gospel anywhere in the whole empire. Those practical reasons made it very uh, excellent timing for Christ to come and the gospel to spread in the empire of Rome. Additionally, among uh, the Jewish people, there was massive messianic expectation at this time. Most scholars agree it's, it's definitely one of the, the most significant moments where they were waiting for the coming of Christ. They had been under uh, incredible, uh, incredible pressure and occupation by foreign governments and military powers for so long that they were sure that now of all times the Messiah had to come. And we can see all these things, and, and they're excellent looking back to see how this is great timing, but in the end, it was the right time because it was the time that God ordained. Seldom is God clear with us and why he's doing the things he's doing when he's doing them. And so often what we find, or almost always in my case, God's timing is not my timing, right? It's certainly not clear according to what I can see. It might seem delayed, why are you so slow, Lord, to fulfill the things you have promised? It might be inconvenient when it finally comes. Well, God, you were taking so long, I started doing something else. Or difficult at the moment, or not according to our plans. And you can walk through the Bible with this, too. You can see in the generations of Noah, the Lord brought a flood to the earth. Why did he wait so long? We don't know. Or you look at Egypt, the, the people of Israel spent 400 years in Egypt and slavery. And God tells Abraham, he says, your, your people are going to be in Egypt for 400 years enslaved so that the, the iniquity of the Canaanites would be complete. And that's the reason. Why did that take 400 years? What does that even mean? I don't know. The, the fullness of time. God is acting in the way he chose to. 
You follow the nation of Israel. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Why 40? Why so long? Or the time of the judges. They get to the land, and then there's 200 years of the people doing what is right in their own eyes. And if you've read the book of the judges, you know that is not a good thing. Why so long, O Lord? Or King David. He waited 15 years from after he was anointed until he took the throne. Why? He must have asked. The birth of Christ comes about 400 years after the last biblical prophet. So the people waited. Why so long? And look at us. Look at what we wait for. We wait upon the promised return of Christ. And it has been a long time. And yet, God's timing is always right. Even now, as we wait upon the Lord, we can be assured that he waits for a reason none other than his patience and love towards us. Peter writes in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's timing is right. The Lord acts when he acts for his greatest glory and his perfect timing. He acts as part of his grand redemptive work for his people and his world. And he acts that he might be shown to be the glorious and sovereign God of his universe. He says to Moses in Exodus chapter 6 that he does all of these things to the people of Egypt so that you will know that I am the Lord your God. God will indeed fulfill all of his promises to us. He is sovereign over them, but he is also sovereign over the timing. The fourth thing that we can see God's sovereignty in is the difficulty of this situation. And you read through our text, and I identified three areas that are difficult. Let me just note them in the text. Mary and Joseph travel, and you get to verse 5, and it says, Joseph was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And, at the end, and in verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So three things I can see that are incredibly difficult in this situation. First, the journey. God called Mary and Joseph to be the father and mother to Jesus Christ. He could have called someone in Bethlehem. He didn't. He called someone at least 70 miles away. What we can know about their journey is it was at least 70 miles. It might have been longer, depending on which way they went. It took at least four days. Again, it might have been longer, depending on which way they went. Quite likely on foot, maybe with the assistance of some kind of pack animal. Hard to know. But you walk through it and think about somebody, you know, think about someone who's pregnant, right? And 70 miles by foot for four days with a pregnant wife is not a good time. Like, walk through that. What a journey. What a calling. What a hardship. But the Lord didn't make a mistake. His calling was not an accident. It was instead part of his plan. God doesn't always give us an easy path. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 7, right? Wide is the way to destruction, easy is the path, but narrow is the gate 
to eternal life. Later, their travels would get no better. They fled to Egypt to escape persecution and fulfillment of another prophecy, right out of Egypt, I call my son. And then they traveled back from Egypt to Nazareth. Lots of travel in the life of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. The second difficulty we can see just plainly in the text here is that Jesus was born in a manger. What is that about? Right? Read through that. It's just, it's, it's mind-boggling. You read all of chapter 1, and he's coming as the king. He will reign forever. He's the king of Judah. He's the king of Israel. And then you get to the text. They get to the town. The time was to give birth, and she laid him in a manger. Like, where does that come from? And think through it. Like we said, the first thing we said is that God is sovereign in big things, and he can be sovereign in big ways. Surely, if God could ordain a census of 50 million people in the entire Roman Empire, surely he could have booked a room at the inn, right? It's not as though God forgot this or didn't do it on purpose, so it must be for a reason. And I believe that it it certainly is. We heard in our Advent reading, uh, even this morning, that Jesus took on humanity. In 2 Corinthians 8, you can see that Paul writes, though he was rich, he became poor. And in Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. What better way to enter the world as a servant to mankind than to be born and laid in a manger in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere that nobody cares about? Talk about the life of a servant, even from birth. The third thing, the third kind of difficulty in this text is uh, in the census itself. Not only was this personally difficult for Joseph and Mary, but the whole nation, the whole empire of Rome had to deal with this census. The whole population, most historians say about 50 million people, were registered all so that these two people and baby would get to Bethlehem. What a hardship. Not only the Roman uh, Empire, but think about the the Jewish people. They had to do this too. They were subject to a government that was unjust, that was unfair to them. They would have had to travel like like Mary and Joseph for days, perhaps weeks. They'd give up work. They'd lose income. All to satisfy a demand by an authority that was overbearing, that was a military occupier that had no regard for their people or their freedom. The people of Israel had it bad under the empire of Rome. They had it so bad that many even changed their theology, their expectation of what the Messiah would be because Rome was so terrible. They had specific expectation that when the Messiah came, he was coming to overthrow Rome. Lord, this is so bad. This is so terrible. Our people are so oppressed. Surely, when the Messiah comes, it is to overthrow this nation. Surely, this is the time. And their theology, their understanding of the revealed Word of God to them changed based on their circumstance. What is incredible in all of this is that under these incredible circumstances, this oppressive authority who had no regard for them, God used directly the obedience and submission of Joseph and Mary to their governing authorities to work out his will. Christians, we must be slow to disobey, disregard, 
and disrespect the authorities that God has instituted over us. God works all of the time in ways we do not see through just authorities and unjust authorities alike. Not only this, but we must be careful that our faith, our conscience, is not improperly defined by our circumstances. What are our convictions rooted in? Are they in the word of the Lord that said Jesus Christ would come, the Messiah would come as a suffering servant? Or have we brought in the things that we see, what's going on in this world, to say, Lord, you must be working in this way because look around. Look at Rome, it's so bad. Surely the Messiah is coming to save us in a military victory from them now. Or is our theology, our expectations of the Lord from his revealed word? We must be careful. In difficulty, in suffering, in persecution, in hardship, and even in submission to governing authorities, God is sovereign over all things. So with all of that said, let's, let's think through some, some ways in which this applies to us. Remember, Luke's whole purpose in writing this account is that we would be certain in the things we've been taught. So do you have a certainty in the sovereignty of God? Does your life reflect this certainty? Do you trust that God is sovereign over rulers, his promises, his timing, and difficulty? And not only in the Bible, not only in history, but now that God is sovereign over our rulers, over the fulfillment and timing of his promises to us and our present difficulties. Let me give you two examples. First, a uh, personal one from, from my own life. Uh, it's easy to say that God is sovereign when things are going your way, when things are going my way. It's very easy to say God is in control because I really like what he's doing. When that changes, it gets hard. What about when you suffer some kind of financial loss? What about when your ability to provide for your family is threatened, or when your best laid plans hit some kind of roadblock, or when the sovereignty of God seems to be in conflict with what he has called you to do? Let me share with you a story. I teach at the college in Barrie, and I have for five years or so, and it's a contract position, but it's been uh, very stable and predictable and, and pays quite well. Uh, and that's been a, a great gig and a, a stable one for all of those five years. And through, you know, the world shutting down, I haven't seen any downturn until uh, this January. I got my contract a couple of weeks ago, and it uh, looks like I'm going to get about 50% of my teaching contract in January. And so Grace and I have been asking these questions. How do we understand the sovereignty of God when things don't go our way? How do we understand the sovereignty of God when he calls us to something that it feels like we can't do because of what he's doing? And we can look through all of the areas we've talked about, authority, difficulty, provision, and timing. In our scenario, God is sovereign over the governing authorities that have made it difficult for students to come to Canada, which is why I'm losing work. God is sovereign over the college authorities that made these decisions. 
God is sovereign over the difficulty that we may experience as a result of this. It's not like he doesn't know about it. It's not like he didn't plan for it. It's not like it's a side effect. He knows that he's in it. And we also believe that God is sovereign in his provision for us. And the part we really don't like, his timing of that provision. God will provide. When he provides, we still don't know. It's especially hard when you look at your life and say, Lord, you have called us to have a family. You have called me to do a Master's of Divinity so I can become a pastor. How today are we supposed to have a child in June and me complete my studies when I cannot afford to do those things? Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing when your sovereignty seems to be working against your calling in our life? I'll give you another example uh, in Adam and Angie. They've been living this for the last five months. They were called and are called to the mission field in probably the worst time in history to raise money and go overseas. Right? You literally can't travel. Their last trip to Dubai, they had to cut off early because they were running out of travel options. They returned to the country. Even now, it's, it's not all that clear how uh, they're going to get there, especially separately. But they would say and have said that God is sovereign over the authorities that have made those decisions. God is sovereign over the difficulty they're experiencing, living in Huntsville, trying to make ends meet, even while they live here, trying to raise a massive amount of money, when the response typically is, why would you go now? This is a terrible plan. It's a terrible time. You need a lot of money. Of course we can't help. It's COVID. And that's what they've heard from 90% or more of the people they've talked to. This is not a good time. And yet, as Rob told us this morning, they are at almost 80% of the money they need in five months. You know how outlandish that is? All of the preparation they've done, all the work they've done with TLI, all the preparatory material they read said, reasonable expectation, this money will take you three years to find. And the Lord has done this for them in five months in a pandemic when they can't travel, they can't go anywhere, they can't see anybody, and the Lord has brought them the money. God has started a work. He's bringing it to completion for them. We can affirm in his sovereignty that God is our provider, even when we don't know how he's going to do it. It's even one of his names, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. He promises that for us. Let me share with you another application uh, for our church, for us here. God is sovereign in all of these things, and he's also sovereign in the calling and the mission he has given in the church, given to the church in the Great Commission. When the Lord gave the Great Commission, he didn't say, oh, you know, well, that's going to apply most of the time, but whenever this happens, like, hold off. Or when the, this, this virus started, the Lord didn't say, okay, pause button, this was not anticipated. That's not how a sovereign God works. He was not caught off guard by these circumstances we find ourselves in today. It's not as though he has not ordained them. Although our circumstances have changed, and they certainly have, the work of the gospel is more complicated sometimes. It's more difficult. God has not changed. His word has not changed. The truth of the gospel has not changed. And our mission of evangelism, our responsibility to do the gospel work, has not changed and cannot change. I was thinking through this, I, I thought of three reasons in today that, that some may have withdrawn 
from the gospel work. The first one I thought about was irrational fear and anxiety. If you have withdrawn from, from the church, from fellowship with us, from the work of the gospel in our ministries and in speaking to other people, because you are anxious and have unreasonable fear due to this world and the virus we're seeing, and if you can't get past your anxieties to step outside and to come and be with us when we have done things to, to make it uh, feel safe for you, Certainty in God's sovereignty crushes those things. We are certain in the sovereignty of God and His sovereignty over this scenario. He knows what He's doing in this world. He knows the hardship that it is. He knows the difficulty it is causing. And He is sovereign over it. Trust in Him. Give up your irrational fear or anxiety and join in the work of the gospel. A second reason we may have withdrawn from the work of the gospel, is complacency. If you're disengaged and just waiting for things to get back to normal, you're missing out, and you're denying the sovereignty of God in your actions. It's not as though this happened by accident. It's not as though we just, you know, there's a blip on the radar, and this is going to be over, and we're going to go back to normal, and then God's sovereign plan is back in place. This is it. We are living it. We cannot forsake the work of the gospel out of complacency. So stop waiting. Re-engage. Join with us in the work of the gospel. It cannot stop. A third reason you may have disengaged from the, the work of the gospel is discontentment or disagreement with maybe the way things are going or the way things look here or the way things look in the world or the rules that are in place. And disagreement among things that aren't central to the gospel can't stop our work of the gospel. It's not as though God has erred in his sovereignty here. We need to restore his will before we can get back to the work he has for us. We have to do the gospel work even now, especially when it is hard. The fundamental truth to unify around is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we cannot forsake it under these or any circumstance. If any of these things are holding us back, we are missing out on the work that the Lord is doing in this. One of my biggest prayers over the last couple of weeks, uh, meditating on this, is that we would never forget about the coronavirus because it's a part of so many people's testimony for the next 30, 40, 50 years. That the work the Lord did through this, through this season, would be so evident through all of the people he has brought to himself. And it would be constantly reminded of his work for the rest of our lives. There have been and will be many people who come to faith through this. We have an incredible opportunity. Think of them all, just through the practical reality of our world today. There are people who will meet you now as their Christian neighbor because they're home literally all of the time, right? There are people now who, who can't travel or see their families this Christmas. They're out of province especially. People who are seeking out meaningful relationship because they've discovered that they really and truly are on their own. People who might seek out a church because what the world has to offer is so clearly a sham. People might recognize the certainty we have in Christ because certainty in this world is impossible. If you are certain in 
uh, healthcare, or you are certain in finance, or you are certain in the stock market, or you are certain in democratic government, like, you cannot have certainty in those things. There is none outside of Jesus Christ. There may be those who cry out to God in desperation because they are ill, or a loved one is ill or has died. There may be those who, seeing these global things happening, like an earthquake or a tsunami, fear some pending wrath of God that will one day come and make this whole thing look like a picnic. People will come to faith in the Lord because God is sovereignly acting through rulers. He is sovereign over his promises in his timing and sovereign over our difficulties. We're going to sing a a song to close in just a moment. I'd like to read some of the words of it to you. It says, Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things and who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore Him. Friends, our God, our King, is sovereign over all. He is in control. Be certain in His sovereignty over our rulers, over our difficulties, and that He will fulfill all of His promises to us in His timing. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to see who you are and to see sovereignty, a fundamental part of your character, displayed so clearly through the birth of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you fulfill all of your promises and that you will fulfill your promises to us in your perfect timing. Thank you that we can rest and trust in your sovereignty over our rulers today and in the difficulties that we experience in this life. Lord, may you work out your promises to us soon, and may we soon see the fulfillment of the things you have shown to us and promised us in Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.